0: Our Old Testament scripture this morning is Hosea 6, verses 1 through 6, which can be found in the Bibles we provide on page 754. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up, that we may live before him. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. He is, his going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Therefore, I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. The word of the Lord. Our New Testament reading will be Romans 11.22, which can be found on page 947. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. The word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, Olivia. <clears throat> I would love uh, to for us to look in this kind of, post-Easter time to look at Scripture today, look at ourselves and look at Jesus through um, Matthew 9, the calling of Matthew. As we come to Scripture, that's, that's a great place to go. What are we going to see about Jesus? What are we going to see about ourselves in this? We're going to be in Matthew 9. That is on page 814 in the Pew Bibles there. <clears throat> This is the word of the Lord here. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at a tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? When he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what it means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came to call the righteous. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. The word of the Lord. We walked through that that story. It's the story of the calling of Matthew, one of the 12 disciples. That story is in three, the first three of the of the Gospels. It's in Matthew, it's in Mark, it's in Luke. And it's the, you know, similar details. There, there are a few little uh, nuanced differences, three different men's perspectives as they look at this. The first thing that I want us to look at is right at the beginning, when um, here, Jesus has just come from, Jesus has been in this town for a while, and he's been doing some miracles some crazy stuff he had just come from the house of of simon who had uh, the paralytic he's just healed the paralytic that the guys lowered through the roof which is one of my favorite stories in all scripture because it's just such a crazy picture um and he has just come from there to get us into this and he is walking by he's just come from simon's house and he's walking by here <clears throat> and it says and jesus passed on from there simon's house um, and he saw a man called Matthew. He saw. The word, we read that, and we kind of go, he saw. He's just like, oh, hey, and there's Matthew, and he, he's walking on. But the, and the, the Greek word could imply, it could mean that. It's used that way. But more often, it means he saw. It's a, it's a, a, a deeper, more knowing, more penetrating look. He saw a man. And that's significant, I think. It's not just a glance. He sees who Matthew is. And it, then it goes on. It says, he saw a man. And that, we just glaze by. He saw a man called Matthew. It, whatever. You just kind of blow by that. But if, we, if you look in, in Mark and in Luke, here's how they describe it. Jesus was passing by. He saw a tax gatherer called Levi so what, what, what's that all about? What does that mean? Levi was his name. Levi was his given name. Jesus goes by. He sees a man. Here's the story is written. It's in Matthew. It's written. This is a, this is a pre-cross event, right? But it's being written post-cross. Matthew, you know, his is writing backwards, writing through this. I mean, looking through time and, and writing this after the fact. So, that subtle little difference, Mark and Luke look at it, and they say, there he, Jesus was by there, and he saw a tax collector named Levi. And Matthew says, no, he saw a man named Matthew. That's this sweet, subtle difference difference that that I love in this, because Matthew sees himself as Jesus now has seen him. Jesus has, his name is Levi, that's his given name, which means he was was a Hebrew, so he was most likely from the tribe of Levi, the tribe of priests, but he's here at a tax table, what's the, so he's a renegade priest at best, right? And he's a tax collector. He's a tax gatherer. We know about them. They, they were despised. He's a Hebrew collecting taxes from Hebrew people for the Roman government. He's got big Roman guys behind him, you know, with their, shh, all this stuff muscling them into it. That's the authority behind it. So he's despised. He's this renegade priest. His old name, Levi. That's who Mark and Luke, describing, him, he sees Levi, the tax, or he sees a tax collector named Levi. Matthew, looking back through this, Jesus has somewhere along the line changed Matthew's name. And you know what the name Matthew means? Gift of God. And so I just, I love that, looking at this as Matthew is reading through this, going, he's, Jesus didn't see a tax collector. He saw a man. And he didn't see Levi, renegade priest. He saw Matthew, gift of God. That's just this sweet, rich picture into the heart of Jesus, into who he, I, Jesus didn't see Simon. He saw Peter. He didn't see Saul. He saw Paul. And, and Matthew is on the backside of that realizing that, and writes that into his gospel, and I think that's really beautiful. Then he says, it goes on, and Jesus says, follow me. <laughs> and, I mean, it's all just one quick sentence, and Matthew follows him. And you just kind of go, oh, okay? I mean, was it? And it feels like, you know, a Jedi mind trick kind of thing. You will follow me. And he looks at him and goes, I will follow you. And, gets up. When I first read this, kind of new believer, new first time going through Scripture, that seemed so cool to me. Jesus just walks by, and he sees him, and he goes, follow me. And Matthew goes, yes, I will. And he gets up, and he, and he follows him, and he leaves everything. And it just seems so, one, crazy, but it, it seems so super spiritual. Like there was this awesome thing that was going on, and I bet there's probably some of that. I mean, it was Jesus, for crying out loud. There was probably some of that that, that went on. <clears throat> um, and here's, here's something about the calling somebody to follow Him. A rabbis uh, took great pains at calling their disciples. They were very selective at, at who they called to be their disciples. Um, so the fact that Jesus... Is looking at this tax collector who is working at the tax booth. Looks as he was at the, the his table was set up by the sea, which is just an interesting. So it's like he's gonna he's gonna set it up right there. So he's catching the the fishermen coming in off the lake, going, "Hey, tell us before you yeah, come right here," and all the you know the Roman dudes are behind him, going, "Yeah, come here." Um, <clears throat> and so he's collecting. He's collecting that. That's who he is. And so the fact that Jesus calls him and says, you follow me is crazy, but really, really significant. <clears throat> it's shocking. Um, and he immediately gets up. So what's probably going on here, the reality, it probably wasn't, you know, I don't think Jesus was a Jedi. Um, what's probably going on here is that one of the things we know about Matthew is he was also, he's a... He's a uh, renegade priest. He was a Hebrew. He was also a tax collector, but he was also a deeply re- religious man. Where do, we, where do we get that? We don't see that necessarily in here, but we see it by reading through his gospel, because in the gospel of Matthew, there are at least 99 references to Old Testament Scripture in Matthew's gospel. That's more than all the three other gospels combined. And so that tells us Matthew, Levi, was a deeply religious man. He was well studied. He knew scripture. He's from the tribe of Levi. It probably comes from there. So I'm thinking he has Jesus has been in this town. Matthew is out and around. He hears people. There's people around him all the time. He's not in some building or some office someplace. He's out. And he's hearing. And he's listening. And he's watching. Likely he has seen Jesus around and he is filtering that through this knowledge of Scripture of the Old Testament. And he, he's going, there's one foretold who will heal and who will free and who will release. And, here's. and so he's studying this, and Jesus says, follow, and he immediately gets up. It's still crazy that he immediately gets up. And follows him. He stands up, walks away from his table, walks away from his job, walks away from his livelihood completely. Walks away from his identity, really, right? Because that's who Matthew and Mark, I mean, who Mark and Luke are describing as. He was a tax man. That's what he did. And he walks away from all that and follows Jesus. So there is something that's really cool in that and I don't know what it was that stirred in Matthew, but I love it. And then here's the other thing that we can just kind of glaze over here. Between verse 9 and verse 10, it says, follow me, and he followed him. Verse 10 says, as Jesus was reclining at the table, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. The very first thing that Levi, Matthew does is have a feast, a party for Jesus. That's kind of cool. He has a party for Jesus, and who does he invite? He invites tax collectors and, and sinners. Why does he invite them? Why does he invite tax collectors and sinners to this party? I mean, at least one obvious choice is those are the only people in his, you know, in his address book. Those are the only people he has on his group, me, or whatever, you know? That's just, who am I going to invite? Uh, who do I know? I'll invite the people that I know. They're tax collectors and sinners. That's who I am. I, that's my people. And so he does. He invites those people. But I think there's, a, there's an old British pastor, an author named G. Campbell Morgan, who I love, who I think has probably a better insight into what it was. Here's what G. Campbell Morgan says. It says he had traveled, Levi had traveled the straight highway into Jesus' heart. He knew that Jesus cared about the outcast and the sinner, for he was one. And so, who's he going to invite? He invites them, because he wants them to experience the same Jesus, the same grace that he has just experienced. And so he sets it up, party, my house, seven and goes through all the preparations, and and it was a great feast. It wasn't just a quiet little. It was a great feast, it says in Luke. A great feast, peopled by tax collectors and sinners. In the ESV, it it just says sinners. In the NIV, every time sinners is is in there in any of these stories, it's in quotes. And I think the, the implication there is sinners, like that's what everybody's calling them. That's Yes, that's what they are, but to me, that just kind of looks back to a man called Matthew. I don't know that Jesus is seeing them as sinners. I think He's seeing them differently. But the whole… So, there's all these people that are invited, tax collectors and sinners. Here's what Morgan says about that men can often be gathered to a feast or a party who would never come to a prayer meeting. It is good, therefore, to have a feast. I love that because I think that's true and I think we miss that so many times. Here's a, a, a really cool little note in verse 10. Matthew has the party for Levi, or I mean for Jesus, but it says in verse 10, and his disciples. Jesus is the guest of honor. Jesus is the, is the main one. It's as if Jesus says, hey, Matthew, thank you for the invitation. That's great. Do you mind if my guys come with me? Because it's all, almost as if to say, because I want them to see this. I want them to experience this. I want them to be with you, and I want them to be with me. That's discipleship. That's how Jesus worked. Come with. And it's not come with me to, you know, some teaching sermon thing. It was come with me to a dinner party, a banquet. And we're going to learn from that. We're going to experience that. I think that's pretty cool. So there's this wonderful thing going on, this this dinner what goes on at dinner you're eating you're drinking you're laughing you're talking there's conversation there's all kinds of great stuff going on it's a beautiful scene here and then comes the record screech (laughs) and and it all comes to a halt and who brings it to a halt the pharisees again ruining the party the Pharisees were in the party. And now here's where, for me, this, this starts to get uh, really personal and really uncomfortable, and it is John Wood's fault. <laughs> Saying that right up front. It's John Wood's fault because John keeps reminding us that when we look at Pharisee, the Pharisees in the Scripture, that we are, that's us. We are more like the Pharisees. We, us, are more like the Pharisees than we are anybody else in this picture, most of us. And I don't like that. But I think it's true. So I can't read Scripture anymore. When I hear the Pharisees, I used to kind of vilify the Pharisees. Oh, Pharisees, bad. And I can't do that anymore because, you know, that messes with me. But what messes with me more is that that's a mirror. And is that really me? Do I go in there and do I spoil the party? Do I ruin what Jesus is doing? Do we do that? And I think, God, too many times... We really do. So, in the, And the Pharisees are in there. They go to the party. I mean, the sinners, tax collectors, they go, party, yeah, Jesus. And the Pharisees go, too. But they're not in the party. They're on the outsides of the party, arms crossed, looking. And, and here's what they do. Who do they talk to? Who's their problem with? The problem was with Jesus. Who do they talk to about the problem? Here's Mir. They talk to the disciples. They don't talk to Jesus about it. They talk to the disciples. And they're back there with their arms crossed going, why is he eating with tax collectors and sinners? <clears throat> and I think really, as I look at it, it's, that's a legit question. It's a legitimate question. It's a good question. Because I, I think that the tax collectors and sinners are probably asking the same question, but with the Totally different motive and with a totally different tone. The, the Pharisees have their arms crossed and they're going, why is he eating with tax collectors and sinners? It's, you know, it's too shocking to be true. And, the, uh, and the, everybody else at the party is going, why is he eating with tax collectors and sinners, us? This is too good to be true. I think they're asking the same question. So, apparently, God... Loves sinners. Apparently, he welcomes and invites sinners. Apparently, he hangs out with and seems to even enjoy sinners. And in me, I like that. And I think we like that. We think of that, you know, John 3.16. God loved the world so much that he gave his only son. Whoever believes etern- has eternal life. We love that, you know, Romans 5, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We, we love the picture of the, the father of the prodigal who, while he was still far off, he hikes up his robe and he runs to him. We love that. We love hearing, God loves sinners, but I'll speak for me here. I, I, I'm realizing I love that to a degree. I love that in... In theory, maybe. I love it to a point. Because when I look in my heart, when I look around at what's going on around us today, I see a whole lot of us versus them. I see in my heart a whole lot of, way more than I'm comfortable with, us versus them. Us Christians versus them sinners. We see it in the news. We see it in the world. We see it all over the place local. We see it in churches. We hear it in churches. We talk about it. We see it on social media. Uh, we see it. I'm seeing it down at UT. There's this whole uh, office of diversity thing, and it's created this, this battleground, us versus them, and we're going to fight it out, and they're the enemies. And, and I just, that it's so discouraging because I think that is, that's in me, and I don't want it to be in me because that's not how Jesus sees But that's who we are. We see atheists, we see anti-God, anti-Christian, anti-Bible, anti-traditional values, whatever the heck that is. We but Jesus sees differently. Jesus sees a man named Matthew. Gift of God. I think Jesus sees those people different, differently. What about? The crazy, you know, warlords and child traffickers. And how does Jesus see those? I, I don't, I'm not sure. I don't know how that plays out. I don't know. But I know he sees differently. So where's the problem? Where's the, where's the breakdown in me? Where's that point where it stops? An author named James Bryan Smith says, the, the problem we have with this is Jesus is striking at the very heart of our problem with grace and the first time i read that i was like problem with i don't have a problem underlined it put big question marks by it. problem with grace i don't have a problem with grace i love grace but the more i think about it and i my uncomfortableness with this and this us i guess i do have a problem with grace i don't have a problem with grace as long as it's you know has to do with me but when it has to do with you or somebody that i don't agree with then then I start to have a problem with grace, and it becomes uncomfortable. We say, John three sixteen, God so loved the world that he gave, but we live, God was so mad at the world that he sent his son to tell us to shape up, that whosoever shapes up will have eternal life. That's kind of how we live. We, and it comes from this false idea, this false premise that God only loves us when we're good. And I think that is so much more pervasive than we realize. God only loves us when I'm good. My behavior determines how God feels about me. I don't, want, I don't even like saying that out loud, but, I, but it's, that's how I live. It's as though I've got God in a swivel chair, and he's happy with me, and then I do something, and he spins around, and he's not happy with me, so I shape it up, and then he spins back around, and he's happy with me. And God's not a swivel chair that leads to uh, this religious performance and doing which leads to legalism I did it I got it right yes and you should get it right too and which leads to Phariseeism which leads to why is he eating with them and not me because I'm better than them and I don't like that I don't like that progression at all but because we live in this It's understandable because we live in a performance-based world. Our jobs are performance-based. We are right now at Cedar Springs, the staff at Cedar Springs are going through performance evaluations. Performance. We're being graded on our performance, you know. Schools, we get grades for, you know, our studies. We get uh, detentions for behavior problems. Uh, sports. We get ranks. We get trophies. Uh, we do it in parenting. We live in a performance-based world, and I'm not saying that's bad. Performance is, is important. When, when it becomes bad is when our performance becomes our identity versus our action. Action is just what we do. Identity is who we are, and we make it, when we make our performance who we are, we are Pharisees, and it's bad. So the Pharisees' problem with Jesus here, they're arm folding, they're questioning my discomfort in this message, in this dinner that Jesus is having is, I think, goes to two, to two sides. One is, it, it, it looks like, so Jesus is just dining with tax collectors and sinners. That means my sin doesn't really matter to Jesus. It's not that big a deal to Jesus. And there is a, there is a current Going on around us that that wants there are authors there are plenty of preachers that will tell you that, and but those of us who spend any time in scripture look at this go no or we scream no that's not right that can't be right so then the, the this pendulum swings the other way, and we get busy and we start to perform and we you know start to be good and it leads to the legalism and the Phariseeism and it leads to the arm crossing. That's what the Pharisees were. They defined themselves by their holiness, by their goodness, by what they did, by how good they were. We hear the saying, God loves sinners but hates the sin. And that's absolutely true. And He hates the sin because He loves you and me, and because He loves truth, and because He loves holiness. But we've got these these two lenses that we kind of Use we we see things through two false lenses. One is kind of the Jesus meek and mild. We'll call him Mr. Godgers. You with me, Mr. Godgers, Mr. Rogers? You know he's the he's the sweet old grandpa that loves everything you do. I like the way you say that. Did you know that? Would you be my neighbor? Would you come? You know it's this it's this warm, welcoming, cardigan wearing kind of God who's just sweet and wonderful. It's kind of the, the love wins, kind of a universalist kind of an idea, and that feels good at first maybe, but if we look at the darkness of the world around us, we look at the darkness just with, of my own soul, quickly Mr. Godgers is, is powerless, is substanceless, is spineless to do anything about it. So what's my other option? This lens doesn't work. Whoa, this. This one's worth the wrathful. That's the God who's going to take care of it all. He's going to clean house. We're going to call him Marquis de God. You with me? Marquis de Marquis. The wrathful, the wrathful God who's up there with the big stick, who's ready for me. We're just watching and waiting for you to get out of line. And then he's going to straighten it up. And we, we don't necessarily want that for us. We sure want that for them. And I sure want that for you. Um, and it's this God who's angry all the time. And it's where we get the idea of divine, you know, uh, retribution. We go, that feels, you know, somebody said that to me the other day, something happened. They go, that feels like, you know, that's kind of God's punishment or God's retribution on them. And I'm just like, "I I don't know. Because this, the marquee to God causes us to live out of fear. And I don't mean good fear. I don't mean fear of the Lord kind of fear. I mean alcoholic father kind of fear. Fear of, what daddy is going to come home today where I'm flinching all the time, worried that God is going to get me, punish me? So the difficult question we have is, how do we make sense of this God who invites sinners to a party, of a father who runs after the prodigal, and yet at the same time feels wrath towards those who reject him? How do we reconcile those two things? It is so difficult to reconcile wrath and love, and, we, and so, we don't, so we just bounce between these two lenses. But Jesus doesn't allow either one of those things. That's what Romans 11 that Olivia read is talking about, Romans 11, 22. It says, you've got to consider this, the kindness and the severity of God. Those are not those can't be separated. We want to separate them. We can't. They must go together. How do we put them together? How, do we, how does love fit with wrath? How do we do that? I think part of the answer is we need a better understanding of both of those things. We need a, we need a more biblical understanding of both of those things. Love. What are the images that we have of love? When we think of love, we get them from songs, poetry, movies, all that kind of stuff. It's almost all emotion and feeling and ecstatic, and I would climb every mountain, and I would swim every sea, and that's beautiful, and it's wonderful, but it's really irrational. And it's not going to, it doesn't really make any sense. But that's kind of what we think, that it's love has to make us feel good and happy and fuzzy. That's kind of how we, how we view love, but a biblical view of love? Scripture talks about agape love, which is love in spite of. Dallas Willard says, love is to will the good of another. To will the good of another. And the great theologian John Mayer says, love is a verb, it ain't a thing. And as goofy as he is, he gets it. Love looks, biblical love looks a whole lot more like the love of a parent for a child than it does infatuated teenagers. I love my children. And that involves a lifelong commitment to them. And it involves warm and fuzzy and happy. And it involves discipline and correction. It involves all those things. That's the more accurate picture of love. Wrath. What's your image? Little word association on wrath. What is, what is wrath? What do, you, what do you think about that? Almost all of our pictures, I would guess, are just rage and veins popping and sweat and the loss of control and deep anger. And it, too, is completely irrational. It's the scene from Raiders of the Lost Ark where the ark opens and, you know, faces are melting. And we kind of, that's what we think about as the wrath of God, as it's, it is the big fire, the big trouble. But a biblical definition of wrath is a consistent opposition to sin and evil. A consistent opposition to sin and evil. It's way more about pathos than it is passion. Pathos is an, is an action formed with care, thought, determination, and intention. That's biblical wrath. It's not passion. It's not loss of control, convulsion, emotion. And wrath is not something that God is. Hear that. Be clear on that. Wrath is not something that God is. It is something he does. Wrath is not a permanent attribute of God. J.I. Packer says God's wrath is in the Bible is always judicial. It's a right response to objective moral evil, a right and necessary response to objective moral evil. God is not wrath, God does wrath. And it isn't rage and crazy anger, it's intentioned. Love, on the other hand, is God's nature. It is an attribute of God. If God has DNA, it is his DNA. It is him at a molecular level. First John 4, 8 tells us that. We sang it. We have a Redeemer whose name is love. It's who He is. God is not indifferent and He is not indecisive about our sin, about evil. Why? Because He is fiercely and forcefully opposed to anything that hurts or damages His beloved children. Parents, if you've ever had kids that have been bullied or whatever, you, you know some of that. You know you want it, you're you going to make it right. That's going to end because it is not right. If God is indifferent to our sin, he is not loving and he's not just. He's just indifferent and uncaring and Quiet and passive. And that's not who God is. If I don't care if my kids are ugly, evil, disobedient punks, I'm not loving my kids. George MacDonald says this love loves unto purity. God's lo- God loves us so much that He longs for us to be pure and holy, and He works tirelessly to make us so. God is fiercely against sin because he is fiercely for us. He is fiercely for you and me. And incidentally, he does just, to be clear, he does not guilt us or shame us into that. Romans 2, 4 says, it is his kindness that leads us to repentance. And that's what we're seeing in this story. It's Jesus' kindness. It's God's kindness. So wrap it up. What's the difference here between the, the sinners and the Pharisees in this story. The sinners have no denial of their sin. They know it. They admit that's who we are. Yes, we're sinners. The Pharisees, there is all kinds of pretense and, and pretending and posturing we, we're the holy ones. We look good. There's, for the sinners, there's movement toward Jesus. They go to a party. They go to dinner and are hanging out for the evening with Jesus. Movement toward him. For the Pharisees, there's arm folding. And they're there, but they're not there. They're away. They are distant. They're away from Jesus. They're, they're picketing. They're holding their signs. They're protesting. They're the campus, they're down at, at presidential or, or at a pedestrian walkway screaming and yelling at people. That's what the Pharisees are doing. Jesus is moving toward the sinners. Who's he opposing? He's opposing the Pharisees. But he's not, be clear about this, he is, Jesus over here with the sinners, he is loving them and he is inviting them and he's showing them grace and kindness. He is doing the same thing with the Pharisees. Again, translated, you and me. He's doing the same thing with them because he, he is opposing their arrogance and their pride and their self-righteousness. But he's giving them this invitation. He says, go, I want you to look and, and pay attention. I want you to learn what it means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. So he's uh, he's giving them an invitation. He's loving them even in the midst of this. Go and learn, he says. So I think that's cool. He's caring for them. He's not dismissing them out of hand. He's opposing their arrogance and their self-righteousness. Jesus is modeling how we can, you and I, how we can eat with sinners and tax collectors and still be holy. And I pray, God, give us the courage to do more of that, to have more parties and feasts and dinners with tax collectors and sinners. Because here's the reality, it takes way more courage for you to invite a whole bunch uh, of neighbors or friends over to your house and spend the evening with them or to, to, to go across uh, the, the office and talk to a coworker, or go across the classroom and talk to a friend than it does for me to stand up here and preach about it. But I pray that's what, that's what we would do. We're just coming home uh, from Haiti. My wife and I at this, spending uh, several days with a bunch of people who are giving themselves away to the broken, the lost, and needy in Haiti. Rich, rich time. We get off the plane in Miami, and as the plane touches down, bing! You know, you can, and everybody starts to stand up. There's this voice that starts preaching on the plane oh, brothers, and he's, he's got that kind of like, brothers, uh, you know, this world's a mess, and, and the only way out is Jesus. And he does this thing from his seat on the plane. I can't even see who it is. And then he, he stops. And it was like he had just done his religious thing And I I was so struck by, you know, I know he wanted that to evoke response, and it evoked response, just probably not the responses that he wanted from me, at least, but because it was like there couldn't have been a starker contrast in my mind. We had just left these people who are having dinner with, who are throwing feasts, who are giving their lives to these people, and then this guy is shouting from his seat his little message, and is done. Never talk to another person on the way out. (laughs) I sure wasn't going to talk to him. It was so anti what this is about. Here's how uh, G. Campbell Morgan wraps it up. He says, out of this, out of this story, says the despised tax collector becomes the royal chronicler and gives us this great gospel of the kingdom, what a great wrap-up to it of what Jesus has done and how it's and what we get from that is Matthew, a man who has chronicled Jesus' life, and we get it and we get to. That's beautiful. Could we be more like Matthew and less like the Pharisees? Let me pray for us real quick, Father. Oh, that's that is. So much my desire, and, and again, like I said, so much of my discomfort in all of this, is that I'm, I'm so much more like the Pharisees than I am uh, than I am Matthew. So make us more like the Pharisees. I mean, make us more like Matthew than the Pharisees, and we confess that we are the opposite of that too often.